Now, uh, this uh, is also the first week of Advent, which is like an old church word. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've had lots of experience with it, or maybe you have no experience with that word. But Advent, all around the world right now, followers of Jesus, like, like all over, different kinds of Christians, are, are tuning into this season because it's about longing and hoping and waiting and expecting. And it's that season that prepares us for the Christmas celebration. And I know that, like, the mall started celebrating Christmas in April, like, to get you buying, right? But there's a, there's a different rhythm. There's a sacred rhythm that says before we turn to that celebration, we take time to remember what it is to long for something, to expect, to hope, to ache for it, to, to need it, to be desperate for God to bring fresh life into the world through Jesus. And that's the season the whole church is in around the world. And it's a really nice season for South Bend City Church. It sort of resonates with what's happening right here for our community because we're on our way to being a church, but there's a lot that isn't going on for us yet. And I know for me, like I, I was just hanging out with Dan, uh, our, who leads us in worship. Last night we were talking, and I was saying like part of me would really like to fast forward to the easy part. Th there is no easy part of church, by the way, but like the part where we have our own building and we have Sunday services and weeknight services and we have kids ministry in the building with like rooms designed that are great for kids. I really want to get to that point as quickly as possible. And we are working, by the way, to get there as quickly as possible. But in the meantime, I think something really good happens in a season of longing and expecting and waiting, especially in a world where everything is on demand. Right? I mean, like, everything is on demand. Like, I have friends in cities where you can order from Amazon at 10 in the morning and have your product delivered before 5 in the afternoon on the same day, right? Like, everything is on demand. And something happens to our spirits when everything is available on demand, right? And there's a holy, powerful, beautiful thing that happens from learning how to wait and ache and long for the really, really good things that God wants to do. So, uh, so we're in the flow of it, and um, I want to take you through some of the details of what's happening in the next few weeks and around the corner. So this is like announcement information stuff. I wish there was a better way to deliver all this, but there's just a lot to talk through. Uh, if you've got your program on the back there, you'll see um, uh, some of the info I'm going to talk through. And by the way, I think we might have run out of stuff, which is a really good problem to have because we just had a lot more people here tonight than we expected. So I apologize for that, but everything here is also on our website, so you don't have to remember it and you don't have to take it home. Uh, so this is uh, November 30th. Next week, this room was not available on Wednesday night because, you know, we're not the only ones who rent from the brick, right? So next week, we're doing something completely different, which is instead of Wednesday night, we're gathering on Tuesday night. And instead of gathering at the brick, we're gathering at this really cool South Bend space called Lang Lab, which is not far from here at all. It's actually just across the river from here and sort of around the corner. Uh, has anybody been to Lang Lab? Yeah, there's a few in the room. Awesome. If you haven't been there, it's this beautiful, eclectic space for art and performance, and we're really excited that we get to be there. Uh, it's also the home of Zen Cafe, uh, one of our local coffee roasters, which is very exciting. So here's the deal. It's uh, at Lang Lab, not the brick. It's at 7 p.m., not 6.30 p.m., and it's on Tuesday, not Wednesday. Are you tracking with me so far? And um, December 6th at 7 p.m. <laughs> no, thank you. Though. More often than not, Lori's the one who actually catches our mistakes, so thank you. So, uh, so here's what we're going to do. We got uh, Zen Cafe is going to stay open late for us. So if I were you, show up way before 7 o'clock, enjoy their coffee. It's like the one place in town you can get latte art. Come on now, right? Like it's a big, I, I know who you are in the room. You're my people, and it's there. Trust me, I've tested it many times. 
Uh, so get there early, enjoy the coffee at Zen Cafe, which is a great way to just support a local business that's doing some really cool stuff. At 7 p.m., we're gonna move into the arts space at Lang Lab, and we've got a, an artist from Nashville, Tennessee coming up. His name is Andrew Ripp. Uh, he may not be a, a really well-known name. I can tell you, I've, I can vouch for him. I've seen him live uh, several times. Dude can sing. And he's bringing a cellist, which is God's favorite instrument. It's by far the most spiritual. No offense to, you know, all, all this. This is great, too. But um, it's going to be really beautiful. He's doing some Christmas music, some original music. It's just like a, a night out as a church, okay? Uh, please feel free to invite friends. If you got kids, we don't have a separate kid care, but they are so welcome. doesn't matter if they're loud. doesn't matter if they're running around. Just know that you can bring your family. And if you got to leave early to get your kids home to bed, that's totally cool, too. From 7 to about... 8.15 or something like that. We'll have some great music. And then after that, at the other end of Lang Lab, they do have a bar. So we're just going to sort of open everything up and have social space and hang out. That's next week. Cool? That's just one week of the announcements. I'm sorry. Uh, then the following two weeks, we're back to normal. The 14th and the 21st are Wednesday nights, back at the break, back at 6.30 p.m., back to our gathering. We're super excited that on the 21st, we're going to do a candlelight service here in the room. We're really pumped about it. It'll be a really special Christmas experience. Uh, we're grateful to the Brick for trusting us with a bunch of flame in this room. <laughs> we kind of talked them through that, and they're like, yeah, okay, fine, go for it. Uh, so uh, December 21st, that'll be our last gathering of 2016. So uh, the week of Christmas, um, just enjoy that time with family, friends. There'll probably be some spontaneous organic connection happening with groups here and maybe you can plug into some of that but then in January of 2017 uh, we've got this room every single Wednesday for those first two months so we're gonna be able to actually get some flow going it'll be regular yeah that's a big deal right and uh, again we're super grateful to the brick for accommodating us to be here uh, goodness that was a lot to talk through let me make sure I hit everything on that stuff Oh, uh, let's talk a little more about January and February. So you look around right now, it's a pretty full room, which is pretty cool. Parking was a bit of a problem, not so cool. Uh, here's what I've been hearing a lot of. I've been hearing that for young families, 6.30 p.m. is a bit late. You know, you got kids' bedtimes. A lot of young kids might go to bed around 7, 7.15, 7.30. So I've been hearing from young families that 6.30 p.m. is a bit late on a weeknight. And I've been hearing from a lot of other people that 6.30 is a bit early on a weeknight. Like, maybe you work till 6 and you would like to eat before church so that you don't take a whole handful of communion bread. You know, <laughs> I understand that. So, um, so because of the size of this group right now and because we're trying to hear that concern, we're playing around with the idea of two Wednesday night services starting in January. And we just want to, the only value here is to make this accessible for people who are looking for a spiritual home whether that's you or someone you know. The value here is just to make this accessible. So um, you'll see uh, most of our chairs, except for some of the ones we added late, have a little survey there. And if you would, like right, if you haven't had a chance yet, like right now, would you just let us know a couple of things of all those possible service times, which is most ideal or preferred for you? Just based on your life rhythm, which of those service times is most ideal for you on a Wednesday night? And then secondly, um, of all the service times, would you let us know all of them that you could make? just so that we kind of, we're trying to get a sense of what works for everyone who's here. And then lastly, you'll see the, the lines underneath there. Um, if you have friends, people you love, people you know, people you work with, and they don't have a spiritual home, um, and, and maybe you sense that you'd like to invite them to this, or maybe they've even said they'd like to be a part of it, but there's something about our schedule or the way it works that doesn't work for them, would you just let us know that? Um, I want to emphasize, we don't have any interest in like just rearranging all the Christians in South Bend, right? 
So what we're specifically talking about is people who don't have a spiritual home, who don't have a space where they are um, able to walk with a community of people toward the story of Jesus and what God does through that story. But if you know them and you want to give us some feedback there, we'd love to take that, okay? Um, awesome. Uh, so as you do that, let me just tell you, we're going to throw those in offering baskets in a minute. Isn't this great? We should just always give everybody something in your hand for the offering basket. So it's just everybody feels like they have something to put in, right? <laughs> Um, hey, we're going to take an offering, and uh, let me be really clear. No pressure, no expectation whatsoever. This is not a sales job to give money to Jesus through South Bend City Church, okay? Um, but I will say this. Uh, we are where we are. We stand where we stand today because of an incredibly generous community of people. This, this group, South Bend City Church, is um, staggeringly generous. It meant that we got to give a really beautiful gift to Hope Mission a few weeks ago, and it means that we get to create this community for our friends, for our neighbors. So I want to say thank you and just let you know that um, that's why we do the offering, so a bunch of us can help that happen. Uh, we'll pass those around. Throw your, uh, your survey little card in there if you would, and uh, you can always give online uh, at southbendcitychurch.com as well. That's that, I think. Everybody, everybody good? That's all the announcement stuff, I think. Good, let's get into the good stuff, shall we? Um, tonight is South Bend City Church's very first uh, communion service. Uh, another word for communion is, is Eucharist. Maybe that's a word you grew up with. Sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, but we mean this thing that followers of Jesus do when they take a loaf of bread and a cup and they remember the things that Jesus told us about this table and what it means to be at a table with Jesus. And we've been moving through the book of Acts, so we've been looking at like what was normal for the very first community that rallied around Jesus. And uh, you've got these scriptures uh, in, your, in your insert there. I want to take you back to scripture that we looked at several weeks ago. Just to remind you, this isn't a pattern of the followers of Jesus. Up there at the top, these people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And it's really clear through the book of Acts and through the history of the church, it's very clear that this was an ordinary thing for the followers of Jesus uh, to, to come to the meal that Jesus taught them to have together. Now, they, they seem to take their cue on this like they did everything, which is they looked back at Jesus, right? Like one of the things that we've seen in the book of Acts is that the church is like nothing more than and nothing less than the expansion of Jesus' work in the world. It's, it's this opening up of Jesus' work in all sorts of places with all sorts of people carrying on the spirit and the work of Christ in the world. And that's really important, right? Because a bunch of people who call themselves Christians can get together and do lots of things that don't look anything like Jesus. And if that's the case, we don't care what you call it. It's not a church, right? I mean, and we've all probably had experiences like that. I've probably helped create experiences like that because I've worked for churches for a lot of my life. And I know that we have to keep just asking ourselves again, no, 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 what's at the center of this thing? It's always about Jesus and what it looks like to sort of surrender to and live out his way of life in the world as he helps us and teaches us and works on us, right? So table fellowship is one of the things that the church did because Jesus did. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, the meals are like all over the story of Jesus, different meals with different people. And there's almost always drama around the meals, which should comfort you if you just came from a Thanksgiving with drama at the table, right? So let me, let me take you to one example of Jesus and, and tables and meals together. This is Luke chapter 5. Check out the beginning of the story. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Let's call a timeout right there. Tax collectors in the Gospels. In the story of Jesus, first century, the, the people, the Israelites, 
tax collectors show up as like these really sketchy characters in the text. Maybe you've caught some vague sense of that if you've been around the Bible or heard these stories before. I've had a vague sense of that for a long time. So I grew up um, uh, with my family going to this really great church here in, uh, up in Granger, and we did this thing while we were growing up called Bethlehem Revisited, which was this like, like outdoor tour where we sort of dramatized the journey to Bethlehem to discover baby Jesus in a blue pole barn. <laughs> that was our version of it, right? And uh, it was a really meaningful experience for our family to be a part of this, and like tons and tons and tons of people would come through this, and we would wear like Hebrew costumes, you know what I mean? And like mom would sew them, and we'd like make little headdresses and stuff, and dad and my brother and I would make little lanterns in the basement. It's very exciting for little kids in church, right? Well, when I, when I was young and a part of all of it, like, I wasn't old enough to be entrusted to lead a group through the tour. So I just sort of, like, ran around the whole thing causing problems, you know? So, like, there was a guard station early in the journey where these travelers who were sort of fictionally traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem to pay the tax to do the census, right? Well, there's a guard station early on there, and we had these very impressive Roman soldier-looking dudes on real horses, you know? And early on, what we figured out is we were trying to give people a real experience of, of the difficulty of that time and wh- how hard it was to live under Rome's rule, because that, that's a real part of this story, right? So when I was a little kid, I had nothing better to do. I convinced the guys who were pretending to be Roman soldiers that I, w- I would hide among one of the families of regular people who were showing up at our church to go on this journey. They would find me, and they would drag me out, and they'd be like, you got a spy, a stowaway. And then they would drag me behind a shed, and I'd go screaming. And then, I'm not making this up, they would take a shovel, and they would slam it against the shed, and I'd scream really loud. <laughs> and then I was told I couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> A little later on, I got to be old enough that I got to be like one of the guides and take a family of people through this experience. And there was always a part right before we came into Bethlehem where we were at the tax collector's tent. And this is, this is, this is a moment, right, where they would, they, would, they would sort of like do a head count of everyone there and we'd have to pay the tax. And there was all this like dramatized friction between us, the good Israelites who were just trying to go to Bethlehem to do what we were told to do, and these scumbags in the tent who were taking the money and doing the census. So I had that vague sense that these guys are the bad guys, right? But I didn't have a deep understanding of it. Let me take you a little further into the actual reality of a tax collector like Levi here in this story. So the Israelites live in the land that was called Palestine at the time, you know, the place where Israel is today, basically. And the Roman Empire just expanded all over the Mediterranean world. And they had this way of working with all these people groups that they conquered, which was they didn't totally assimilate them, like they didn't totally just bring them in. They still sort of lived as Israelites or as some other people group or tribe or village, but they had a way of living under Rome while they maintained their own sort of operation, right? Well, one of the things that Rome would do is they would say, you've got to pay taxes to Rome. You, you, you've got you've to feed into the big system so our military and our empire can keep expanding, but we're going to sort of contract this out to local players, So one of the things that would happen is an Israelite could bid on the job of tax collector, and then they would pay Rome for the privilege of being the tax collector, and then everything the tax collector collected, he kept. See, Rome already got their money. They got the money through the bidding process. So you got a group of of Israelites who are bidding on the position of tax collector, and then whoever wins the bid and pays the most for those positions, they get the job. Rome takes that money. Rome is happy with that tax. And then the tax collectors, they set up shop uh, places like at the gate of a city 
or trade routes, places where people who are traveling to do business, to sell goods, to have stuff that they would unload in a market, right? They would set up shop on those trade routes and they would stop them and they had, they had power, they had, they had muscle behind them. And then what they would do is they would assess the value of whatever the goods are. Hey, you've got a bunch of wheat or you've got a bunch of, uh, I don't know, you're selling livestock or you've got some chickens or something like that. I, this is where my knowledge of first century commerce breaks down a little bit. Whatever it is they're selling, they would stop them, and they would see what's there. They would assess the value of it, and then there was a tax on the value. Now, check this out. Rome set the percentage of tax. So I don't know what it was. Say it was 5% or 10%. The percentage was set, but the tax collector gets to assess the value. Make sense, right? So, like, I don't know about you guys, but I own a house here in River Park neighborhood. I've been there for, like, 11 years now. And every year I get a fresh assessment on the value of my home from the local tax person. The tax rate, I think, is set in Indianapolis or something. I don't know. Some legislator does that. But then the value of my home gets determined by somebody locally here who, I don't know how they do it, but they pull a number out of a magic box, and I guess that's what my house is worth, you know? See, uh, the tax collector gets to do that. So notice all of the problems here. First problem is these tax collectors had enough money to bid on the job from Rome. This is not a time and place where lots of people have lots of money. In fact, almost nobody has any money. You don't have money in a world where most people live by the things they grow and the animals they raise and the things that come from the things they grow and the animals they raise. Most people live on what they create out of the earth, not on what's in their bank account. There are very few people in this time and place who live out of, like, cash out of money. You know who does? There's one group of people who seem to find themselves with that kind of money. They are lenders, bankers. They do something that there's this old word for it, which is usury. Uh, and you need to know that in, in this time, in this place, and in the Jewish law, lending money at interest is completely not allowed. God seems to have a problem with the way that debt becomes a burden on people. He doesn't want that for his people. So for a person to have a lot of money and then use that money to lend it, but then to charge lots of interest, this is like the modern equivalent of payday lending. It's honestly, it's kind of scummy. It's dirty. It's a, way of, it's a way of taking people who don't have enough and taking even more from them. And it's known that in the first century, the people who had the kind of money to say to Rome, I'm going to bid on a tax collector position, got their money by lending money at interest. Did you know that? I just read this. This is interesting, right? Uh, from a good source, not like on the internet, I promise. So, uh, so, so this is where these guys got the money to bid on the position, right? So the, the beginning of their story is they got money in a dirty, broken, uncool way, right? They used their dirty money to get a position that allowed them to take money from all sorts of people. And here's the deal. Let's say you bid, I don't know, $10,000 for this position to be a tax collector from Rome, and you won. So that's your cost, right? You spent $10,000 to get this job. Well, you've got all the incentive in the world to look at a person's, you know, uh, cart of goods that they're about to sell. You've got all the incentive in the world to look at $1,000 worth of goods and say, ah, oh, that looks like $2,000 worth to me, and the percentage is 10%, right? Because every dollar, every way you can inflate that tax is just more money in your pocket. And by the way, you're the kind of person who's fine with that because you got your money in the first place by charging interest on the poor. You guys getting like a picture of like just what scumbags these guys are? And, and then there's one more note here, right? Which is that they made this deal with Rome, the enemy. With Rome, the ones who have their foots, their feet, foots, their feet on our necks. 
right? They, you made the deal with Rome. So you're a scumbag who got your money by charging interest to the poor. You used the money that you got to make a deal with the enemy so you could take more money from the poor. That's who the tax collectors are. It's so bad because they lent money at interest, which is specifically prohibited in the Torah, in the Jewish law. The house of a tax collector is ceremonially, religiously designated as unclean. Not just informally, not just sort of like, oh, that's just a bad dude, so don't hang out with him. No, his house is like formally recognized as a den of sin, of corruption, of distance from God. That's a tax collector in the story. Got it? And this is Jesus saying, I see Levi, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. You can just start to feel how Jesus is, like, compromising himself, right? Like, there's no way you have any reputation when you do this kind of a thing. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And by the way, it's just interesting that it's called out, like, there's a, there's a sectarian line here, right? There are teams, in this time, there are, there are Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and all these different camps of people. And all these different camps of people have different ways of putting together the complicated equation, which is what does God want and what does it mean to be human and how do we flourish under these circumstances and what is the best kind of life? All, all of those questions get lumped together, right? And then these camps emerge from asking all those questions. And they, they're concerned about different sects, and they want to know where Jesus fits into all of it. Is he on our side or against us? Is he playing to our rules, or does he play with one of the other group's rules? And so they have these questions for him, like, why, uh, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Seems to me that one thing's really clear about Jesus' table. When Jesus eats with you, like the worst kind of person is welcome there. But the one kind of person that might find a problem at Jesus' table is the kind of person who thinks they make themselves worthy of Jesus' table. Right? I mean, these camps, Pharisees and Sadducees, these different types, they have different ways of building themselves up, of making sure they have their I's dotted and their T's crossed, of making sure they put together their life in all the right ways. And they're the ones who, it's like they're on the outside of the party, like looking in. By the way, do you wonder if a little part of them is jealous because it seems like they're having a lot of fun in the party? <laughs> like, I wonder if there's a little bit of that, like they're kind of afraid to admit it, but it seems like there's a really good time going inside with all those tax collectors and sinners and Jesus and the food and the wine. Like, that's, maybe that's just me, but I, I think that's maybe um, underneath the surface here, right? Seems like the one kind of person who may have a hard time at Jesus' table is the person who thinks they make themselves worthy to be at Jesus' table. And yet all kinds of people find themselves welcome, find themselves a part of the party with Jesus. Like, people who have just done, like, low-down, dirty things, right? In other passages we read about, prostitutes who find themselves welcome at Jesus's table. And I don't know about you, but when I read about a prostitute, especially, especially in the first century, but even now, I think, like, this is a person who has been on the underside of everything. They've been used and used and used. And yet there they are at Jesus's table, 
all kinds of people welcome at Jesus' table, but it, but it seems like the ones who think they know how the camps are divided and how the lines should be drawn and who should be in and who should be out and what it takes to get in, and they're the ones who make sure that the only people who get in are the ones who did the right things to get in. It seems like those are the, the people who find themselves at a distance from Jesus' table. And we should just pay attention to that if we're going to come to Jesus' table tonight, right? I mean, it's really good news although it requires a bit of self-reckoning. Because I don't know about you, but there are days when I'm like super impressed with myself. <laughs> and I'm like, man, like God did a good one with me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> look at this, you know? Um, and that's the one thing that really gets confronted at Jesus' table. And so he says, look, like anybody who knows they're sick, come on, there's healing that happens at this table. Anybody who knows they're broken, they're a bit of a mess, they haven't got it all put together. Anybody who knows they are where they are today by God's grace. Like, you are welcome at this table. Now, um, this makes sense of uh, the way that Paul talks about Jesus' table. So I'm going to skip now to the next section. And this comes from a letter in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that was written to one of the early churches by one of the leaders of the early church. And he's talking about what happens when the church does what we're about to do. Now, when they did this, they often did it in homes, and they did it with full-on meals and wine, and that'll make some sense of what we read here. Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. And here, I think Paul's being sarcastic. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. You hear that, that sect thing happening again? Who's in? Who's out? Which side? And he's like, of course, you probably need that so you know who's in and who's out. And of course, the whole point is those lines don't exist with God, right? When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. This is completely in line with what Jesus was doing with Levi with dinner, with, with dinner parties when he walked the earth because this is a table where we remember that like, we don't earn our way to this place. This isn't a place to assert our strength, our wealth. This isn't a place to divide ourselves by lines of haves and haves-nots. And that, that could be have-nots financially, it could be have-nots spiritually, it could be have-nots relationally, it could be have-nots in all sorts of different ways. This is not a table where those divisions should be played out. But what was happening in the early church is wealthy people were coming to these, these gatherings, and they were bringing their own food, their own wine, and they're just like, just being gluttonous with it, while just to their right or their left, there's a brother or sister who didn't have those resources, and they ignore them, and they get drunk and full and go home, and another is hungry, and he's saying that's completely incompatible. Because this is not a table where we divide ourselves by any kind of line. This is not a table where some of us are self-impressed or self-supplied or self-supported or self-whatever. Like, this is a table where we find this radical common ground on the fact that we just need what God is up to at this meal, and we want to be a part of it, right? Now, um, this is interesting. Sacred meals have been a part of virtually every major religious tradition in the history of the world. So this is fascinating. You can look at Islam today around the world. You can look at Buddhism or Sikhism or uh, Judaism. or you, you can look at any major religion around the world, and you almost always find that, that, that eating and drinking together is a part of the practice of human beings when they are trying to tap into the spiritual. I think that's really interesting. 
if you think about it for a minute, I mean, this, this is one thing that we have never gotten away from with all of our technology, with all of our advancements, no matter how impressive we are or, you know, how much you work out, like, none of us gets away from regularly needing to, to bring something into our bodies to keep our bodies going, which is, is like a powerful experience, right? Like, every time we sit down to any table, we're enacting, we're playing out, we're, we're doing this thing that we only have to do because, like, our bodies are dependent, because our creatureliness is contingent. What, what I'm saying is, like, we will end. <laughs> I mean, we will cease to exist, right, if we don't constantly, regularly bring things into our body. It's interesting that whether it's Thanksgiving or whether it's a, a holy ritual, a, a sacred experience in a bunch of different religions, we do this thing again and again where we enact together, like with every bite we are saying, I am not enough. If I were enough, I wouldn't need this, right? With, with every bite, with every sip, we say when we eat together, I am not enough. And yet, then this abundance comes. It may be a simple meal, it may be an extravagant one, but we say I am not enough, and then in that very moment of saying I'm not enough, something comes in, we, we have what we need, thank God, right? So I don't think it's surprising that, that spiritual traditions, whenever humans have tried to dig into those deep spaces inside, where the, the, the most eternal and most important things are part of who we are, that they've turned to eating together. Ma makes kind of sense, right? There's a natural intuition to that. By the way, I, I actually think this is why, first of all, this is why some of the most special moments of connection you share with your loved ones are around a table. Like sometimes you've had this moment, right, where you sat at a table and it was like a temple. And it may not have been that there was anything religious about it, but there was something sacred about eating together, drinking together around the table. I also think this is why sometimes family meals are so freaking hard. I'm serious about this. Because like, any time human beings get together around a table and eat and drink, I think what's happening is we are in some way stepping into a current that is flowing toward uh, very spiritual things. Anytime we, we gather around a table, we are stepping into a current that leads us toward a sense of, of unity, of union together, right? And so when there is disunity, it really gets aggravated when we step into that current. Does that make sense? Like, when you have a sprained angle, try to run. See what happens, right? Where there is disunity, and we come to a table which is meant to be an experience of connection and union, that disunity gets sort of flared up, gets exacerbated sometimes. Those difficult undercurrents come to the surface. I think that's all happening when we come to the table. Jesus seems to know that's happening, which I think is why the meals are so prevalent in the Gospels. And I think it's why he took it one step further when he told his followers to partake in this meal. So let me sort of like take it one step further. This is the next part of 1 Corinthians, uh, that next paragraph there on the bottom of the page. Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the thing that Jesus does here that is a bit unexpected, that sort of ups the ante on all of it, it's like he knows that meals are places where our dependence and a certain kind of abundance meet. He knows that meals are places where spiritual things are happening, where the spiritual 
layer of our lives is exposed, he knows that we, we need something to come into ourselves on a regular basis, right? And he says, at this meal, not only does God give you what you need, God gives you himself. I mean, that's sort of like taking it to the ultimate, right? Like, whatever aching, whatever hunger, whatever, whatever depth of need you feel, whatever desperation you feel, whatever it is that brings you to the table, God says, I haven't just given you bread in a cup. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to allow my body to be broken, my blood to be poured out. I'm going to give myself in love for the world and for you, for the people on your right and your left, so the church gathers around this meal. It's not just that God has given us a meal, it's that God has given us himself. And so this is um, this like deeply spiritual experience that he calls us to, that's meant to remind us that we receive the gift of God himself, given to the world for the world, poured out for the life of the world, for the love of the world. And again, this is also a table then where like, it's not, it's not just like me and Jesus, right? Because if I'm drawing lines between others and myself when I come to this table, then I've done something that's completely incompatible with this table because we all have this hunger, this need, this ache, right? Now, um, as we practice communion as a church, this is our first time, and so we, we did some thinking and some praying and some, some chewing on this together. And as a church, we are very convinced that the way we practice the table, the cup and the loaf, it ought to be the way Jesus practiced it. We feel very strongly about that. So what it means is that anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus belongs at this table with us, and you are so welcome here. We're, we're pretty sure that, like, a lot of the people at Levi's party that day that were at the table with Jesus, they may not have even believed about Jesus, the thing that our community believes about Jesus, and yet there they were welcome to be at the table with him. And so uh, one of the things we, we desperately want to do is create a space for every kind of person, no matter where you're coming from or where you're at in a spiritual journey or whatever you believe. And this meal, we want to say, it's for anyone who wants to be at the table with Jesus. Maybe you see it as um, you're saying to yourself and, and to the world, you are a person that subsists not just on food and drink, but you subsist on love. Maybe coming to this table is a way of recognizing that. Maybe you're a person who is inspired by Jesus' moral example. You're not sure what else to do with him, but you look at it and you're like, that's a pretty good way of being human. I'd say, that's a pretty good reason to be at the table with Jesus. Come to the table with Jesus. Maybe you're a person who believes what, at the center of our community, we believe about Jesus, which is that he's God who has come to the earth to die for the life of the earth, to give love to the earth, to lead us in a new way of living and creating peace in the world with him. And this table is for you too. And uh, our practice tonight is to come to the table with Jesus. And... Um, I can't think of a, a better step for us to take as a church. Now, uh, let me just sort of like talk you through how we're gonna do it. I know it's weird, like let's just say, sometimes it's awkward, like rituals, practices, especially in a communal setting like this. So first of all, that's okay, it's allowed to be awkward. Let's just like give each other that license, okay? Once we say it's allowed to be awkward, then we can get over it, you know? But let me talk you through how we're gonna do this. Um, a little later in our service time, uh, Dan's gonna be leading us in music along with the band. There's a couple of songs. And during that time, uh, there's no coercion. Nobody has to. You don't have to be a part of that. But if you'd like to, uh, during that time, you can just get up. And at the back corners of the room, we've got four stations. And at those four stations, you'll find somebody's holding a basket of bread. And uh, by the way, all the bread in the room, except for this 
ornamental loaf. Um, all the bread in the loom room is gluten-free and lactose-free, so you just don't have to worry about it, right? You don't have to worry about where to go if you have those dietary needs. Uh, and and the, the wine is grape juice, because we didn't want anybody to feel removed from this table, right? So, uh, so you can go to any corner, and somebody's going to hold a basket out to you, and they're just going to remind you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then it's already broken up, so you can just grab a piece of bread and hold on to that and just be thankful for what that means to us. Now hold on to it, and then you move over to the cup, and somebody will hold a cup out to you, and they'll remind you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And you can take your bread, and we'll just dip it in the cup, okay? And then you can take that, and you can eat that, and return to your seat and be grateful. Before we do that, uh, we're going to um, just sort of take a deep breath together. I don't know what Thanksgiving was like for you. I don't know if it was awesome. I don't know if you were missing a loved one who was here the last time Thanksgiving happened. I don't know if there was drama or politics or I don't know if you didn't get to go home and you just wished you had been with family but you weren't. I don't know what it was like. I don't know what all you're bringing into this room tonight. Um, But because all of us belongs at the table, all of you belongs at the table, right? Your failures, your hopes, the things you're anxious about right now, the things you're excited about, all of you if you come to the table with Jesus, all of you belongs there, you know? So we're going to take a minute of silence just to sort of collect yourself. Just breathe real deep. Just relax. After that minute of silence, I'll let you know. And then um, on uh, one of the pages on the inside of your program there, you'll see a silent reflection. And if these are helpful, you're welcome to use them. And we'll just take about two minutes with a little bit of music in the background. And under silent reflection there, you'll see some questions that might help every one of us bring our whole selves to this table. And the beautiful thing is, like, we remember our failures, our broken places, the dark spots that we wrestle with, and we bring those to the table, and as we remember them, we're convinced that everybody around us, even the people we might have difficulty with, even the people we might be angry at, even the people that we feel division from, if if we get to come to the table, so do they, right? And we get to celebrate that. Um, But also, like, your hopes and your joys and your aspirations, all that belongs at the table with Jesus. So these are just some questions to help us collect ourselves before we come to the table. Uh, when the silent reflection is done, then I'll come back up and I'll say a prayer for us and I'll serve those who are going to serve you and I'll let you know when it's time to do the communion thing, okay? But let's, um, let's just breathe deeply in a moment of silence and then um, just relax into that. Know that you belong here, all of you. And then uh, we'll move on to these questions and reflection and we'll take it from there, okay? now let's take a a couple of minutes and just reflect on bringing your whole self to the table. And if those questions are helpful for you, you can meditate on those for a few minutes before we move on to what's next. Thank you. 
the back side of the silent reflection, you'll see toward the bottom there, there's a brief reading. And it begins with, we come to the table. And if this expresses your heart, uh, you're welcome to put the, the words in bold on your lips. And we'll just sort of uh, pray this out loud together here. And I'll pray the words that are not uh, bold. But let's, uh, let's read together. We come to the table because we are perpetually invited. We come to the table celebrating that God comes near to us. We come to the table acknowledging our participation with God and with others. We come to the table remembering and proclaiming God's story centered on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We come to the table anticipating God's healing in our own lives and of the whole world. So let me remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread with his friends and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this to remember me. And he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant, of a fresh work, of a new promise that will endure, that God is with you and for you and is looking to break into your life to lead you toward healing, to be part of a more beautiful world that he would create. He took a cup and he said, this is my blood poured out, that you remember that covenant and thank me for it. And so tonight we'll come. I'll pray. And uh, while I'm praying, the people who are going to serve you are going to come forward so I can serve them. And after I serve them, I'll let you know, and then we can move on uh, to everybody having a chance to partake, okay? Loving God, uh, we are reminded that another word for this meal, Eucharist, means thank you. So I know for me, um, I feel a, a deep gratitude in my heart. I feel a deep gratitude for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. A gratitude for his words and teachings that come to us. I feel just overwhelmingly thankful that we're here right now in this moment in South Bend, in this city, this place, this time with one another, that this story isn't abstract. That right now the story is dressed up, wrapped up in what we see in this room right now even, God, that the flesh and blood on our right and left, the stories, the laughter, the tears, that this story is wrapped up in flesh and blood in this room in a way that's not unlike how it was wrapped up in flesh and blood with Jesus. But God, we're also reminded that there is something just particular and unique about him, and that in some ways we, we just feel a, a chasm, a, a gap perhaps between his way of being human, and ours. And we're just so grateful, God, that nothing about that prevents us from being a part of this fellowship. So we come to the table mindful that whatever it is that might keep somebody else from the table, it's not really that different than we might think what might keep us. And yet if we're invited, so are others. And so we come to the table not as individuals living in private little worlds, but as a community, as a growing family. And we thank you, God. We pray these things uh, through Christ. And we all said, amen. I'll serve these who will serve you, and then we can all come forward. It's the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. And it's the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. Ryan, it's the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. Robin, it's the body of Christ broken for you blood of Christ shed for you.
body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. Angela, it's the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. Michael, it's the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. Lindsay, it's the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. And now if you'd like to partake as Dan leads us in song, you're welcome to get up whenever you're ready and wherever you'd like to go as we come to Jesus' table together.
Stand together as we sing this last song. As we sing these words out loud, or as you just read these along silently, let's just give our thanks to God through this word.
and peace be with you. See you next week. Stick around and hang out.